Good evening, everybody. Hello. hello, hello, welcome. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Kevin Bradley, Assistant Director General for Collection Management at the Library. And as we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land. I thank their elders past and present for caring for this land we are now privileged to call home. 1968 was a momentous year for many reasons. There were wars in Vietnam and Nigeria, student demonstrations around the globe, and the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. Australia was facing its own challenges with the swearing in of John Gorton as Prime Minister following the presumed drowning of Harold Holt. I was surprised to see these notes had presumed drowning written on it. If you go, <laughs> the conspiracy still is. If you go to the exhibition, the 1968 exhibition, which I'm sure you will, you'll see the complete police report in there at any rate. So that's part of it. And there was, of course, growing unrest about conscription for overseas military service. Amid this turbulence, the opening of the National Library's new building in Canberra in August 1968, a realisation of the vision of former Prime Minister Robert Menzies, was a moment of national pride and achievement, something we are marking in 2018 with our 50th anniversary celebrations, and the Library's new exhibition, 1968, Changing Times, which, if you haven't done already, I encourage you to go and see. 1968 was also a very big year for the legendary quartet of musicians, The Seekers, Athel Guy, Keith Potka, Bruce Woodley, and Judith Durham. In January, they were appointed jointly Australian of the Year. Their television special, The Seekers Down Under, was screened to a record audience of six million viewers in the United Kingdom. They toured New Zealand and returned to the United Kingdom where their final performance on the 9th of July was screened live by the BBC, attracting an audience of more than 10 million viewers. And tonight we are delighted to have Atul Guy and Keith Potgar in the library to reminiscence about their rollercoaster rider success. But before we welcome them to the, uh, to the stage, I'd like you to just see this first. Adam. Prophet Bob Dylan was to observe that year, the times they were a-changing. That year, American President Lyndon Johnson signed the most controversial civil rights legislation in the history of the nation. While in Britain, Harold Wilson was elected Prime Minister and the country was preparing for sweeping changes. In Australia, as Prime Minister Robert Menzies was about to reintroduce national service, Four young entertainers were preparing for a working holiday aboard a cruise ship bound for the United Kingdom. Little did they know at that time that they too would change the world. Judith Durham, Athol Guy, Keith Potker and Bruce Woodley, who sang together as the Seekers, were hopeful of a little work in Britain before reboarding the fair sky and heading home again. But fate stepped in. And within 12 months, the Seekers had become the newest sensation on the British music scene, sharing the spotlight with the biggest names of the day, among them the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Success followed success for this trailblazing Australian group. They reached number one in England with their very first record, I'll Never Find Another You, and also took it into the American top five. 
The Seekers followed that first chart success with many more. A world of our own, the carnival is over, and their finest moment, Georgie Girl. There were sell-out concert tours, gold record awards, television specials, an Academy Award nomination, and a record-making appearance before 200,000 fans. But the ultimate accolade came when the Seekers were named by their country Australians of the Year, 1967. The Seekers marked 1968 with a big-budget television spectacular, a new album, and the credit for opening the door to international opportunity for the many Australian performers who followed in their footsteps. But out of the blue came the announcement that shocked the music world. At the height of their astonishing success, the Seekers had decided to split up. In the 25 years that followed that monumental decision, the four Seekers roamed the world and enjoyed great success in their respective solo careers. But not once in that time did the four ever perform together. As suddenly as their breakup was announced in 1968, came the announcement in 1993 that Judith Durham and the Seekers would mark their Silver Jubilee with a concert tour and a commemorative album. The concerts were expected to sell well, but no one had any idea of the stampede that was to greet the opening of ticket sales. And within a matter of weeks, the original itinerary had swelled tenfold, and the album which was released to celebrate the reunion tour had passed platinum. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. How do you do? How are you? Who are you? Let's have a look. We want that. <laughs> Did you find that interesting? Yes. It'd be a very short show if you didn't. Uh, welcome uh, to myself and uh, my colleagues, uh, my lifelong colleague Kit here. Welcome to our little story. We've got some lovely clips to show you that I don't think you've seen before. Uh, of course, it's, it's about the identity of the Seekers and the music. It's not about fame. Uh, Keith and I have discussed this quite often. Uh, but in life, of course, uh, fame is very nice, but it's the who we are, what we do and why we do it. The identity, you know, and I'm sure I'm not asking anyone here to put their hand up, although we will, because we've, we've, had, we've both had an identity crisis. In recent times, slightly different to what you might be imagining, not the one where you look in the mirror and going, who am I, what am I doing and why am I doing it? A little while ago, friends of mine came up to see me. I live at Mount Macedon out in Victoria and some friends of mine came up to see me <laughs> and they were paying their bill at the local service station and the girls behind the counter were very busy fixing the, the, the cash register up and they were chatting away about an article in the local paper about very well-known people who lived in the Madison Ranges, and Keith knows that because he'd been there for a while, including the now Senator Darren Hinch, which is another story which we won't go into tonight. Anyway, they're talking about this article in the local paper, and one girl says to the other, not knowing two of my best friends, but I saw these people and they named them, and then one of them then said to the other, oh, yes, and there's that nice old bald bloke. <laughs> who used to sing with Peter, Paul and Mary. <laughs> uh, it's 
So if you reckon you've had an identity crisis, <laughs> that's why I love doing this show. But Keith, he's, yeah. he's got a better one. This happens to us all. Oh, well, yeah. It, it involves a service station as well. It's funny about this. It's a coincidence. Yeah, service station. So there am I driving from uh, Sydney to return my rental car to the airport. And it, I need to fill up with petrol, of course, uh, to leave the car full at the uh, rental car station. And I uh, drive into this local uh, uh, petrol station just near Sydney Airport. And I'm in a tearing hurry. So I fill the car up. And I give the guy my, my credit card, okay? I give, him, give him my credit card. And uh, he, he's taking, he's sort of looking at this credit card. And he's standing behind the counter and he's, he's talking to the credit card. He says, didn't this guy used to be in the Rolling Stones? <laughs> so there you go. You can't win them all. No, you can't. Now, you have a seat, right, my yeah, friend. Yeah, have a seat. Car. This, uh, we have to use this next clip. It's really a bit more about my life, but I'll deal Keith in here, and he knows when he'll come in. Uh, of course, I, I was born uh, in Victoria. Uh, Keith was uh, born in a beautiful country uh, not far from here, which he'll tell us about as we go. So, uh, Adam, hit the clip. We'll have a little look at this as we go through. And from the visuals, you'll see. And you can go, oh. Thank you. Very. Oh. <laughs> As my dad. Uh, he was in the Navy. In fact, we were at the uh, war, war Memorial today uh, checking on his background. He was uh, on the HMS Australia in some pretty torrid times. He and my mum, and my mum said, your dad is a bass player. My mum said he had a great sense of rhythm. That's until we had you. <laughs> it's me and my, <laughs> my dear sister, you know. Now, uh, Keith will relate to this because this is what he was doing as well. Now, we hadn't gotten together at that stage. Where, where were you when I was at that stage? Um, I was at um, St Kilda Park State School, and um, I'd just come out from, uh, uh, from Ceylon, as it was known then, now Sri Lanka, and uh, uh, born in Colombo, and uh, our first address in Australia in 1948, this was. Uh, 1948 was St Kilda, and the local school was St Kilda Park State School. There I was. Well done, Matt. That's well, my, my first group, the Ramblers, 1958, with Peter Bally, Gary Butler. No, in fact, 1958, 60 years ago, I can't believe that. We were seeing on in Melbourne tonight and the local TV. Now, this is when Keith joined us. Up the back, the escorts. You couldn't call the group that these days. Doesn't quite work. So there we are in 1960. Keith up front and the boys. Yeah. And we had a great time. Now, uh, I stopped playing footy because my eyes went sideways. Uh, but it's amazing how horn-rimmed glasses made you look very intelligent. And you now know that's not quite true. Anyway, I'm with a, I'm with a double bass and double vision. Uh, myself and my... Oh, no, I was favourably compared with Buddy Holly. Yeah, uh, Peter Sellers and Superman. <laughs> Michael Caine got in on the act. Boy, you <laughs> buy our own Here we go. Here we go. Keith on the right. Keith gets the solo here. I don't know how you got the lead in there. How did you get the lead in there? Thank goodness for a brew cream. I 
There was one microphone hanging over our heads. One microphone. They don't do it that way these days, believe me. The big voice was Ken Ray standing next to me. The big falsetto, 17 years of age, always doing his best to make me laugh on national television. I, I still get the speaking parts, though. <laughs> well, Ken, who was just 17 when we first auditioned him for the Escorts and went on to become the fourth member of the original Seekers, uh, 1960, correct me? 62, yeah. I was 62. Early, yeah, early, early 62, 62, yeah, we joined. And then um, he, he was... Um, uh, engaged to a lovely lady whom he uh, decided to marry uh, and um, then he decided to leave the group and that's when, uh, when Judith joined us at the end of 1962. The, the interesting thing, uh, and we always believed, n you, you could never manufacture anything that ever happened to the Seekers, R right up to today, you simply can't do that. Uh, it, it, we got our blessings from somewhere and thank goodness because we're still together as great life friends. However, we needed, as we decided, mm. uh, between us, uh, when Ken dropped out, we'd like to have a girl in the group because we knew how our voices, myself and Keith and Bruce, how we meshed together. But the sort of music we wanted to play and sing, we felt needed that girl's voice up there, like the coat hanger, for us to put our harmonics on. Yeah. I think that's the way we felt. Yeah, and we were very impressed by uh, an American group called The Weavers. Uh, Bronnie Gilbert was the lady singer in that, Pete Seeger. Fred Hellerman and Lee Hayes, and uh, we just loved that sound. So that yeah, yeah, it was beautiful. So, so we, we knew what we were looking for. What happened? I was meant to go and hear two singers in Melbourne. One, uh, both jazz singers. One was Judy Jarks. I don't know whether you might remember Judy, and the other one was a young lady by the name of Judy Durham. And I'd met Judy's sister Beverly, uh, who was actually here with us last night. Judith couldn't come up, can't travel at the moment, unfortunately. But her sister Beverly was here with us last night. And I'd met Beverly at Channel 9 where I was working and she said, oh, you should go and listen to my sister sing. And I said, oh, that'd be great. I want to do that. Well, before that could happen, literally two days after that conversation, I was sitting at my office desk in an advertising agency by the name of Joe Walter Thompson and this little head poked itself around the corner of my office and said, hello. <laughs> hello. I'm Judy Durham. I went, oh, she said, you're Athel Guy, aren't you? And I said, yes. She said, you were going to come and hear me sing. And I said, well, I'm going to do that. And she said, when are you going to do that? And I said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you come and sing with us tonight? And she said, oh, okay, I think that'll be right, because someone come and pick me up. I don't mean in that way, but come, someone come and collect me is probably a better way to put it. I said, yes, Bruce lives. So, cut to the chase. Keith and myself were there. Bruce walked in the door with Judy, now Judith. And we introduced all round. We said, what, do you, what would you like to sing? Don't worry, no rehearsal. We sort of know the sort of things you do. And we, without rehearsal, I remember singing two songs that have never left us. And they came from the Weavers. From right? the Weavers, yes. When the Stars Begin to Fall. When the Stars Begin to Fall. Yeah. And another one which we'll tell you about in a few moments. Yeah. Without rehearsal, and we just sat there and we sang through, I don't know, a dozen different songs. Mm. And that bit of magic happened. Nothing has changed in essence, except from some very fantastic vocal arrangements from Keith over here, which we'll come to when Tom Springfield met up with us. And Tom was the man 
who took us over the Rubicon, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was pretty much the fifth seeker. And uh, first of all, uh, wrote some great songs and uh, second of all, produced them as well. And so he was the man behind uh, our initial recordings of I'll Never Find Another and so on and so on. Well, what, what happened? We met up with Tom. We'd been in England for six months and we'd done a lot of television. In fact, we were on a national television show in England two days after we arrived because we'd had some help from friends in Australia. Horry Dargy, anyone remember Horry Dargy? Wonderful friend. Horry Dargy and the Quintet, they'd been through Europe, of course, uh, in the, the 50s. And Horry introduced us to an agency called the Grade Organisation. And just before our boat docked at Southampton, uh, we got a telegram and it said uh, from the organisation, the Grade Group, welcome to the UK. Uh, you will be on national television on Tuesday night on the Cliff Mitchell Moore Today Tonight program. Well, do you think that phased us? <laughs> of course it did. <laughs> uh, well, we stepped up. What did we sing? Uh, we sang uh, with my swag on my shoulder and this train... This train was uh, was our uh, was our big single at that stage, and uh, yeah, and, and we had uh, there we were uh, having been in a country that was only uh, short uh, a little bit over 11 million people in Australia at that time. Uh, we were then appearing on a TV show that was playing to 11 million people in in England. It was amazing. Well, it was fantastic. It was a bit of a fairy tale. What happened after that? We worked very hard. We worked every day, if not every second day, on BBC radio programs, whatever. Anyway, the bottom line was nobody would pick up our album from Australia and none of the big companies would sign us up. Same as what happened to the Beatles originally. Well, it was history repeating itself with us. However, Tom Springfield came into our lives and as much as we were still very busy, came in with a little scrap of paper, which I think, Magpie, you've still got. I do have it. Should we auction it tonight? Oh, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think it's been promised to Kevin Bradley here, actually. So it has. Kevin's it'll, end up, get it. it'll end up at the National Library eventually. That, he said it in public. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, we sat around. I remember we went into Abbey Road Studios, where the famous Abbey Road uh, with the Beatles and everybody else. So we passed like ships in the night. But we went in one morning, one Saturday morning, and Keith sat down before that, though, and this is when the sound didn't change, but it morphed from a folky, bluesy group into that great song, I'll Never Find Another You. And as I keep saying to sound engineers and other people who sometimes get our blend wrong, please go back and play I'll Never Find Another You. <laughs> because this was the seminal moment. This was the song that took us to where, in, in so many ways, we've ended up uh, today. Now, that song went to number one. February 1965 and as a result of that we were named in the New Musical Express the International Poll Winners Awards the Seekers were named the top best new group and to put it in context but in the right context the group that won it the year before was a little group called the Rolling Stones and the group that won it the year before that was another little startup from Liverpool called the Beatles so you had this little Aussie band third in that sense, in the third year. And we want to play, Adam, if you wouldn't mind, just put this up and let's have a look. That's the award we won. It's like an Academy Award in the music business. We've each got one of those. And if you had to just isolate one moment, we keep saying to each other, it doesn't get any better than this. God knows how many times we've all said that together. 
didn't get any better than that in a way, did it? It was not a great tour. Not at all. Uh, now, the concert. And the concert. Quickly about the concert. Yep, here it goes. Thanks, Adam. Here we go. We'll play the concert. You'll see some people you know here. In, in these days, you've got to have pyrotechnics, million-dollar videos, choreographers, dancers, you name it. Well, this is the way we did. We were told to step up, Hello there. step up, play up, sing up, and show Welcome up. Welcome to the annual New Musical Express Pole Winners Concert here at the Empire Pool Wembley. Well, we've got a sensational lineup for you this afternoon. The Moody Blues. Original choreography. It's a very appropriately named group. Don't you know that no one alive can always be an angel? When things go wrong, I seem a little bad. Cause I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. Dusty Springfield. Great lady, Dusty. She's mine, you 
Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to introduce you now to some new friends of ours that made a 12,000 mile trip all the way from where they hang upside down in Australia and they're doing very well for themselves. And they're very delighted to be here at this NME poll winners concert. So how about a terrific hand for the one and only The Seekers. Let's hear it now for The Seekers. We'd like to sing for you now a song that we hope will be nearly as successful as I'll Never Find Another You. That's a song written for us again by Tom Springfield, which was released last Friday. It's called A World of Our Own.
<laughs> if you want something to change your life, <laughs> there it is in a nutshell. Uh, what an amazing day. I, and uh, interesting little story about the day because uh, uh, we all passed like ships in the night, again, like at rehearsals. And we were stuck in our dressing room. Our manager was standing outside uh, and uh, John Lennon walked past with a very cheeky grin on his face, walked up to our manager, looked up to him and said, they're not a bad little band, you know. <laughs> but they're all here to see us. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, three weeks later, the world of our own knocked Ticket to Ride off the top of the charts. <laughs> but, I, but I have to say they'd been there for a little while, in, uh, in fairness. So how do you follow up that? Well, we did. We had the carnival is over at the end of the year and I think we might still be the only group to have its first three singles at number one in the British charts. Uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it certainly was our, uh, our, our delightful uh, event to, to have those three Tom Springfield songs that, uh, that made our career, absolutely cemented our career in... Uh, in the UK and in and overseas as well. In fact, I'll never find another you got to number three in a, in America. Uh, not a lot of people know that uh, was uh, in the top three there, and World of Our Own was in the top twenty. Carnival is over. Didn't make it in America, but uh, but certainly we made up for it later on with another song, which will remain nameless. Well, they, yeah. Well, we'd better name it, I think, probably. Oh, <laughs> we, <laughs> no, we we'll save it till the end. Well, interestingly enough, we had another two big hits in the next sixty-six, and, and in fact, the Seekers over a 12 to 18 month period, topped the charts points in the UK, above all. So with three number ones, that's, you know, boy oh boy, uh, you know, sort of hard to top that. But for a Christmas single, and I, you might remember how we picked this, but the, we've got a song here that really is, is one of the songs that you put very early in your concerts for a very simple reason, which we're about to find out in, about in a moment. This song has just been given its greatest tribute. It's been recently recorded by none other than the Wiggles. <laughs> and it <laughs> happens to be one of the first songs we sang on that original night. That was on the Weavers album, wasn't it? This song? No, no it, was on the, it came from a Limelighters album. Limelighters album and, uh, yeah, uh, it was uh, it was a song that we were aware of before we actually left for for England, and uh, it had a kind of a different tempo, and and uh, I, I kind of secretized it uh, as uh, as would and made yeah, it he, uh, made he it did, our own. You did, you <laughs> did, you <laughs> you're cunning, we, uh, you're cunning dog. We, <laughs> that's right. We had the had the banjo and everything like that, and I'm, I'm talking about Morningtown Ride, you see, and. Uh, 
there, there was a, a, a funny story about this, which I love telling this story, uh, is that um, I was at a kid's birthday party and uh, not long ago, and, uh, and uh, the kids were about this tall, so I thought it would be terribly appropriate if I sat in a corner very quietly and started singing Morning Town Ride, which I did. And, um, and a little group of kids gathered around me, and uh, suddenly the, 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 the birthday boy came across from the other side of the room, and he stood right in front of me, and he, he upset me, unsettled me so much that I had to stop singing. And he looked me straight in the eyes and he said, why are you singing a wiggle song? <laughs> so, 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 this is true, so, so I stood myself up to my full five foot 12 and three quarter inches and I said to him, excuse me, young man, do you know who I am? <laughs> and, the, and the kid turned to his mum and said, hey, mum, this bloke over here doesn't know who he is. <laughs> but, Anyway, it was it was great because, as Arthur mentioned, the Wiggles the Wiggles have sung it, and and uh, uh, with Jimmy Little, R.I.P. And uh, it's it's a great tribute to us and to the song, and just goes to show how music goes round and round in the most yeah. wonderful little concentric circles. You know, yeah, so but they're but yeah. they're great friends of ours, the Wiggles. They are, and I like just go back to the arrangement of the song because it is very different. And this gentleman over here is just the genius in the group for working out how all our harmonics should work and sits up half the night with a nice bottle of red sometimes <laughs> like this. <laughs> Just figuring out the little nuances and if you look at, if you listen to a lot of our songs, you know, the opening lick on a 12-string guitar which now is about as, as pertinent to the sound of the group as the lyrics and the songs. This is where at the time when Keith met up with Tom Springfield and heard those songs, as I said, you know, it was the moment when we went across the Rubicon. But I, one little, one little story about Morning Town Ride, which I do, I love telling this, because you think you've got the kids, because they all sing it in schools, right? So you reckon, oh yeah, we've got this lovely audience of children who love our songs, isn't it great? You had friends of mine, couldn't wait to tell me this story. Story, the wife of a good friend, she's been in the washroom uh, at Interval, latest washroom at Interval, one of our last 50th anniversary concerts. And she said there were two girls there, obviously sisters. And the little one said to the older one, he said, oh, you, you knew all the lyrics to Morning Town, right? And the older one said, yeah, I, I learned it at school like you did. And the little one said, oh, it's a nice song, isn't it? And the older one said, yeah, that's a nice song. It's a bit of a pause. And the little one said, but they didn't sing Georgie Girl. And the, <laughs> and the older one said, no, no, no. That'll be in the second half. <laughs> a bit of a pause. And the little one said, oh, God, that means we've got to sit here and listen to Mum singing for another hour. <laughs> Do not take children for granted, musically, <laughs> believe me. Anyway, now this is your audition because we're here for the multi-purpose tonight and I'll tell you why at the end. Depends on how well you sing. Here's a clip. Here is the song. It is irresistible. We place it very early in our concert act because the audiences invariably end up singing louder than we do. So here's your big test. Thanks, Adam. Let's go with the clip. Here we go.
Congratulations. <laughs> you are now formally inducted <laughs> as the National Library Division here in Canberra of the Seekers Tribute Band. Thank you. <laughs> Beautifully sung. Thank you. Irresistible. Well, Morningtown Ride was number one Christmas 66 and uh, stays with us for... All those, all those reasons. It wouldn't have been a concert that uh, we hadn't sung it at. Now, that was great. And other, other hits came. Uh, 68, of course, which we're celebrating here now with the library uh, changing times. Boy, it were the 60s changing times in so many ways. And we were over there in the musical Olympics of the 60s, you know, winning our share of gold medals, if you like, uh, in so many ways. But uh, July uh, 68, 50 years ago, uh, we went our separate ways for a whole variety of reasons, but we did have uh, a wonderful final concert which was uh, televised uh, over in the UK. I think there were 10 million viewers just in the UK. And we're hoping, actually, maybe the ABC... Is anybody here from the ABC? Uh, <laughs> you can own up to that. I mean, it's like... <laughs> that the ABC couldn't afford to send any delegates today. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like them to replay... The Farewell the Seekers. Uh, we, we'll make a few phone calls ourselves, maybe in the middle of the year. Anyway, the point is, at that time, uh, we had to say uh, goodbye. Now, what happened after that, is, and Keith will remember this well, because <coughs> I used to ring him about every three months saying, I've had another phone call with someone wanting to put the, the group back together again. <laughs> well, I don't mean as a performing group, but they wanted Seekers songs for special occasions, international expos, you know, Australia Day functions. Uh, you name it, the bicentenary. And three times, and we want to pay a little tribute here in these clips, three times Judith couldn't make it. Uh, she was, Judith was overseas touring 
uh, with her husband Ron playing the jazz clubs, I think, around Europe. Keith was living in the UK at that time. Bruce was, I think, in Nashville writing. However, Keith and Bruce and I did manage on three different occasions for some very special international functions to find a great voice, uh, three wonderful female Australian singers who you're going to see here in these clips. Louisa Whistling in the 70s. And we actually did two albums with Louisa, great songs. Yeah, they were great. And there was a very successful single that Bruce wrote called Sparrow Song. Do you recall that one? Yeah, that was a good, big hit. No, it was wonderful. We had a great time. But it was not a, it was not a seamless performing seekers as such. But I just make the point that this is our tribute to the three girls who did step up to the plate and joined us at some fantastic occasions. Uh, Julie at Bicentenary in 88. Uh, and then Karen uh, Knowles came in and took over for a big expo in Osaka and a couple of other... The Carols by Candlelight. We did three or four huge Carols by Candlelight. Anyway, the point is, this is a clip. Now, have a look here because you will see... You'll see the Seekers in psychedelic mode and I'm blaming you for this. <laughs> Keith, Keith, Keith dresses beautifully all the time, has a great colour schematic in his head and applied it to the group when we were doing a television show for Channel 10 with, <laughs> with Louisa. Uh, what happened to this black outfit of mine? I've got to ask you about this afterwards. Anyway, we're a little psychedelic. We were pre-ABBA here. Enjoy this. It's a bit poignant, the statement from me. But enjoy the three girls that stepped up at the plate in the 25 years before we actually did get back together again. Thanks, Adam. Thank you very much. As you know, tonight is our last concert together. And I'm afraid this next song is our last song together. And I guess at a time like this, there are a lot of things that you could probably say, but I think that really there are only two things. And that is from all of us, very, very sincerely, thank you, thank you very, very much. And goodbye, because I'm afraid tonight the carnival really is over.
That's obviously the My Music Bowl in Melbourne Carols by Candlelight. That's the nearest I'll ever get to a mullet. So there you go. <laughs> kept, uh, kept the Seekers brand out there in, in many, many ways. And uh, we're very grateful uh, that the three girls were able to step up to the plate. Now, we've got a swing across here to the year 2000. And the seminal event was the Sydney Olympic Games. And uh, do you remember a series on the ABC called The Games? Yes, well, gosh. Well, John Clark rang me one day and John said, I thought, we know why the Seekers aren't singing The Carnival Is Over to close the Olympic Games. And I said, do you now, John? Because <laughs> they knew everything else. They knew all the mistakes within the committee that had been made. And uh, we've, we'd had a, a call from uh, the... Uh, the producer of the whole program and we don't need to go into that anyway the bottom line was we didn't and there are reasons why we didn't but John said to me we're going to use that story as the final clip final episode in the games and I said well he told me what was, was going to happen I said well if, if that happens it'll be the last clip on my reel it'll be terrific and we told the team about it <laughs> and I said to him now you got knowing John Clark God bless him and I said a, you are not to make me look any older than I really am. <laughs> right? And remember, this is 18 years ago, so you can be the judge. And I said, and the same applies to the boys, otherwise they'll be quite upset. So guess who came off second best? You can work that out for yourself. Anyway, here's the real reason why the Seekers did not get to sing The Carnival Is Over to close the Olympic Games. Thank you, Adam. television crew downstairs. Oh God, what are they, they want to know if it's true that there's some sort of cock up at the closing ceremony and if it is true can you go on real life bastards tonight and if it isn't can you go on celebrity bathrooms tomorrow night? No it's not true Tim and thank them but no. Right. Thanks so, John. John! Oh God here we go. Look you two just stay out of this. Well, he doesn't look very this. happy. No I don't think Nicholas is a very happy person. John? Okay, sit down. Yes Nicholas. What have you done? Haven't done anything Nicholas. You people have really surpassed yourselves this time. What are you talking about? What's that supposed to mean? John, is it true that you have blown the main act to the closing ceremony? No, it is not true, Nicholas. Then why is the minister telling me it is true, John? Because the minister has lost the main act from the closing ceremony and as usual he's got his it wasn't me, sir, defence running and he sent somebody over to shout at some people who didn't do it. You told me it was all set up! It was! They were getting here on Thursday. Well, have you got a fallback position? It's only Wednesday. But what about the first choice? Well, all right, let's discuss the first well, who choice. Was it? The, the Seekers. seekers. Mm. 
Look, if they sang the carnival is over, it'd be fantastic. Wouldn't be a dry oh, eye in the house. Absolutely brilliant. It's the yeah. ideal solution. Yeah. They're the biggest live act in Britain at the moment. They would then fly back to Australia where they came from in the first place and they would sing the carnival is over at the closing ceremony of the Sydney Olympic Games. It'd be fantastic. It's a brilliant spectacle. But it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, no, but that's not our fault. We didn't talk to them. Okay. Why didn't you talk to you them? I know very well why we didn't talk to them, Nicholas. Why? The minister wouldn't let us talk to them. That's not what the minister says. Well, John. ring the seekers, Nicholas. You ring the seekers and ask them who they spoke to. This problem, you caused it, you fixed we it. We didn't right? cause it, Nicholas. You know bloody well who caused this problem. Look, just get the minister to acknowledge that we did not cause this problem and then the four of us can work out what we're going to do about it. It'll be us who has to solve it, Nicholas, as always. John, what is this? It's a rehearsal schedule. That's the timetable for rehearsing the closing ceremony. Well, why have I got it? Well, the good news is we might have solved this business with the Seekers. Really? Good. Nicholas? What? What size pants do you wear? <laughs> Why are you laughing at me? <laughs> oh, the genius of, uh, of John Clark, Gina, uh, and the boys up there—they they, they did an amazing job of that. I thought they nearly—they nearly made it. They nearly got. <laughs> they could have used them. They could have gotten away with it. I—we uh, often reflect, and I know uh, Keith will have an opinion on this. Uh, 
50 odd years, we've had our 50th. Uh, a, the, a, the highlight for you, did you ever think we'd like be sitting here talking in the current tense because we do have something else to show you which will let you know about our aspirations because we still have some. Oh, no idea. Uh, in 1968, uh, when this uh, wonderful establishment was uh, opening its doors, uh, I was in, in uh, London. Uh, the rest of the group had left uh, to come back to Australia, but I stayed on because my family was there and uh, I had absolutely no idea what was going to happen. So 50 years on, my goodness gracious, who could tell? So there we are. You know. yeah. Now, it is, it is, it's about as simple as that, you know, but there's no complex answer. Music is in everybody's lives and fortunately uh, we had the fairy dust sprinkle on our, us and our music and as I say, we still have ambitions for, for the group. Uh, Judith couldn't come up uh, this week, unfortunately. Uh, but we want to play you a clip now because this, I think, highlights in a way what we'd like to do next, I think. Would that be right? Oh, yeah. yes, I think this is, this is absolutely our next step. In the Seekers saga. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. No, it's good for, you, for us to be able to tell you this. I hear the music of the world turning, can't you hear the sound of the world turning? If you stop and listen, you can almost hear things grow. You can have music wherever you go. That's yes. uh, a little bit close to the truth, my yes, friend. Yes, I'm, so, I'm so tired I have to sit down. <laughs> well, tickets for the 60th anniversary tour will be there. Well, we've been overprivileged to that extent. Kevin, uh, I know that we might have some questions and we'd love to answer them. Uh, 
and we'll stand up to do that. Yes, well, here um, we are. Yes. I must say, if the fairy dust um, was sprinkled on your musical career, some of the glitter's still here with us tonight. That oh, was fantastic. Great. Thank you. <laughs> and of course, as we knew they would, they've gone over time by a little bit, but we've got time for a couple of questions. Microphones on either side. Raise your hand, and that was the first person there. Um, there you go. Keep talking. You're right. The Georgia, the Georgia Girl musical yeah. you're talking oh, about? Yeah. Oh, yes. Well, my, certainly my impression was that it was a, it was a very well put together uh, musical. It, uh, it had a lot, of, uh, uh, a, a lot of talent involved. The, I think the, uh, the, the actors and the singers who actually portrayed our parts were, were top notch. And uh, as one would imagine, to fit uh, a 50 year career into two and a half hours is going to be a challenge anyway. But I thought the show generally was uh, terrific and it ran for 14 weeks in Melbourne, and, uh, nine weeks in uh, Sydney and, and, and also had a, a season in, uh, in Perth. So. Well, I've, I personally, uh, if you pass this on, I'll have to kill you. <laughs> no. Personally, the, the cast were fantastic and we got, very, we got very close to them. And that's the first thing you need for a musical. I thought... <laughs> thought the music was terrific. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they lost the plot a little bit from the day when they ran, um, what do they call it when they just run it that day we went to? Oh, the, uh, uh, the workshop. Workshop. Yeah. All musicals get a workshop and it's very condensed. It's about an hour. Keith and I were there. And Keith got up and said some terrific words right at the end of that workshop because they had all the people who might be the investors there on the day. And they gave, this a st they gave the workshop a standing ovation. It was, but it was song after song after song after song. In the musical, as it got produced and certain segments got overproduced, for me, and I don't mind saying this, I'm being, you know, you asked the question, I thought it turned into a bit of a soap opera. I thought... Rusted on fans were very interested in that as, as the, the story progressed. I just don't think it, it projected the music because three or four of our best songs weren't even in it. And I'll have another point which I won't make here. Keith knows what that is. <laughs> but overall, terrific people and the producers were wonderful. They're great friends of ours. Uh, and the cast, wonderful. Couldn't have been better. And I think it's coming back, maybe with a few... Things edited. A bit of a nip and a tuck. <laughs> and there was another question over there. Oh, there you go. Yeah, um, I'd like to know the background to one of my favourite songs. And it's a song that I believe should be our national anthem. Let's get rid of Gert by Sea and, and get We Are Australian. Can you tell me some the, the story behind that, please? Well, uh, I, I, I understand that. And we've sung it around the world. The verses, of course, are Australian. Obviously, obvious thing to say. The choruses, though, are fairly universal, and I understand where it where it sits. However, you think about it from the seekers' point of view. We can't get up and sing our national anthem as part of a concert. Question here in the middle. In fact, my question is about exactly that piece as well. 
We're coming up to Harmony Day on the 21st of March. I have the privilege to work um, with the Administrative Appeals Tribunal in Sydney. And everyone from all around at our office will bring their food from different cultures. We stand and we sing that song as if it is our national anthem. One thing I'd like to suggest, um, because the song kind of finishes, it doesn't recognise people who've arrived from Italy. Papa's ricotta cheesecake is waiting for you backstage. Um, it doesn't recognise people who come who've come from Vietnam, from Afghanistan. There's a couple of good rhyming words. I'll just give Bruce a call. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually, we've actually, we've, we've had around the office and we've come up with a couple of uh, a verse that we'd like to pass by. Okay, well in that case you give Bruce a call. <laughs> no, but would you welcome that, seriously? No, I, it's, no, it's an interesting point you raise because, can I tell you this other story? Yes, why can't I? Bruce, because of the Anzac Day ramifications of a trip that he made recently, wrote the Anzac Day version of I'm Australian, which he, beautiful piece of poetry. Judith still labours day and night, wanting to rewrite totally Advanced Australia Fair. <laughs> Keith has a couple of Australian songs with no jingo in, no jingoism in them at all. But you get to a point, I'm not a songwriter. I, I love lyrics and I can have a crack at it, you know, tell me you want something written about something, I'm happy to do that. How you fit everybody's sensitivities. You could, you could suggest you know, for specific occasions to someone like Bruce. Could he or would he? You know, because it turns into, from Judith's point of view, I said to her the other day, don't try and put that to the music of Advanced Australia Fair. What you've written is a very lovely piece of poetry. You know, with a very different slant on what we regard as the national anthem. And Bruce would be happy, you know, we can you know, certainly channel it through to, to, to take your points uh, on board. Yeah, very much so. Right. Can a I question? also share perhaps with the audience quickly... This is the birthday present that I gave to my mother on the 6th of July, 1968. Oh, how about that? <laughs> there you are. <laughs> a question over here. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, I just had a, a quick question. Um, for, I think for many Australians and people overseas, your 1993 reunion tour was a very cathartic experience and joyous for many fans. I'm just wondering the extent to which it had a cathartic effect on, on you, almost, I guess, and these are my words, having seemingly unfinished business from 1968. I'm interested, thank you. Yeah, well certainly, uh, 93, we, uh, we started rehearsing in 92 because we realised that it was coming up the 25th anniversary of uh, the year that we broke up. And, uh, and, and it was fantastic to think that we were so naive at that stage that we thought we would do one concert as our reunion. And in 1993, it became 120 concerts <laughs> around, around Australia and New Zealand. <laughs> it really came home to me as we came off stage at the end of the opening concert at Hamer Hall. In Melbourne. Where, were you, where did you see it? Over in Canberra. Okay. Well, we... The first one was at Hamer Hall, yeah. I think, wasn't it, in Melbourne? Yeah, anyway, Melbourne. Well, my daughter at that stage of the game was 12, I think. 
And we hadn't told her much about the Seekers as you know, uh, we went on. And uh, she'd, she'd heard Georgia Girl at school and that one day she'll ask us all the questions and you know, we'll, we'll get through all that. And then she was there in the, uh, in the audience, you know, family. And I came off stage and before I got around to that corridor on the side where the dressing rooms are, this 11-year-old with her eyes bugging out of her head, Dad, Dad, they really love you. <laughs> okay, but, here's the, but here's the sting in the tail, sorry. At the reception afterwards, remember the reception afterwards? Oh, yeah. Well, we're standing there, we've got a journalist friend, and he's standing there, and my daughter's there, and he's, he's pumping my tyres up, which was very nice of him, you know, and I'm all like, hey, and your dad's done that, and this, and you must be very proud of him, da-da-da, you know, I'm looking at my daughter, and she looks up at him with her hands outstretched, and she says, it's just my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Last question from the middle here. Thank you. Uh, well, firstly, thank you for the music and the memories. Sensational. Thank you. Uh, just curious, you've had a couple of top five successes in the U US charts. You had uh, input from the Springfields, these people. Was there ever a time when you thought maybe we're done with the UK, we should be in the US? Yes, there was a moment. In, uh, in 1966, 67, we were going to 60, into 67, uh, when uh, we, we had um, our manager uh, arranged a, an American tour for us. And uh, we, did, we covered uh, many states of America and, and played uh, into uh, stadiums. And that was uh, an eye-opener for us. But unfortunately uh, for, for us, I think, at that stage, our manager was very... Uh, English-centric uh, and was working on the basis that if you had a, uh, a job lined up in 18 months' time, that would be the way a career would develop properly. And in fact, to that end, he lined us up with this, <laughs> with this pantomime in Bristol uh, <laughs> in, uh, in late 1967. And that was the year, that was the time that Georgie Girl was nominated for uh, an Academy Award. And... Uh, Athel will take over. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the time, we couldn't go to America because Keith was playing in Mother Goose. Yes. Uh, he was... He was uh, were you Little Boy Blue? I think... I, no, I was Little Boy Brown, I think. Little I Boy Brown, yes. Yeah. And I think... I, no, Bruce was Little Jack Horn. I can't remember who I was, but it was something of that ilk. So there we were, one of the, one of the most famous groups on the planet, <laughs> tucked away in Bristol, couldn't go and, re and even compete for the Academy Award, which we, which we uh, didn't... Win anyway. Matt Munro did uh, with Born Free, which was a wonderful choice anyway. But we just we couldn't get. We did uh, go to America eventually, and we did a fantastic tour. That was a tour. And a, a quick story there: we played at the uh, University of New York in Albany, in yep. New York State. Oh yes. Yeah. And uh, we'd, we'd play half the show. We had a comedian with us doing the first half, very well known on the first half, and we would sing the second half. And those American college concerts were something else. Anyway, cut to the chase. We're in an auditorium with about 10,000 people, and we were at the, actually at the front of the house looking at their backs as the young man came on and did the first half. And we were all standing there going, hmm, he's just had his first hit with this particular song that he sang in his set, and we're going... Hmm, might be a bit hard to follow this. <laughs> anyway, we did, and they, the, they stood up row by row, most fantastic audiences, as we walked down through them, and as we stood on the stage, we got four or five minutes of standing applause. 
The young man who'd been on stage in the first half singing his first hit was a young man by the name of Neil Diamond. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, just before we bring it to a close, you had one more thing you wanted to show us? Well, uh, <laughs> there, there are a, there's a clip coming up now, but we've, we've finished, and thank you so much. It's been, it's been fantastic to be with you today. There's a couple of songs which we finish our concert with. Uh, the last one is called uh, Keep a Dream in Your Pocket, which is the message we love to give to people. Follow your dream and follow it well. Always keep a dream in your pocket. Uh, and thank you for being with us today. Uh, again, uh, we just we love these moments when we connect up front with the people that have put us where we are in that sense in the musical world. That's your doing, and you should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> no. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Thank you all very much. If you'd, thank you all very much. If you'd like to join us upstairs, it hasn't ended. There are drinks and refreshments upstairs. Uh,